Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20. Is your eye evil? The word or term evil eye, it doesn't refer to bad vision. It doesn't refer to an unsightly eyeball. It doesn't refer to a mean stare. It doesn't refer to uh, a uh, lustful or an ungodly uh, glance or, or, or gla- um, uh, stare. An evil eye is a Jewish expression which is synonymous with jealousy, uh, especially as it relates to greed. One with an evil eye cannot stand to see other people prosper. Over the course of my life, I need to let you know this morning that I have had some monumental struggles with this hideous sin of pride. I can remember uh, back as early as the fourth grade, and I was when I was in the fourth grade, I, I wrestled. I wrestled for the fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth, eleventh, and twelfth grade. Wrestled every year, and I had a very good friend by the name of Dave Heath, and Dave was always lighter than I was. And if you know anything about wrestling, during the course of a match, the lighter guys wrestle early, and then the heavier guys wrestle as the match would go on. Now, when Dave would wrestle, he would wrestle, of course, in front of me because he was lighter than I was, and he was a very good wrestler. And while he would be out there wrestling, I would be clapping my hands and I'd be yelling, get him, Dave, pin him, Dave, I want you to win, Dave. But in my heart, I was thinking, man, sure would take a lot of pressure off me if Dave would lose. He usually won. And I tried to do the same. I always didn't. But I had an evil eye. I couldn't stand to see him prosper and not me. Jealousy. Pride. Anna and I are in college. We've just begun dating. We don't have any kind of formal commitment to one another. I've got to stay in Athens, Georgia over over the uh, Christmas holiday. She gets to go home. So what's the agreement we make before we leave one another? The agreement is, go ahead, date other people if you'd like to while we're apart. (laughs) Christmas comes and Christmas goes and I'm talking with Anna on the phone. Of course, I didn't date anyone. I didn't mean that we could actually date other people. We didn't have a formal commitment, but I didn't actually mean we could do it. So we're talking on the phone and she says, well, can't wait to see you. Oh, honey, I can't wait to see you either. Can't wait for us to get together. Yeah, I can't wait to get together either. I guess, you know, she, so Anna says to me, I guess we'll get together and you can confess what you've done and I'll confess what I've done. Myself, I haven't done anything. (laughs) So what do you mean? She said, you said we could date other people while we're apart. Well, yeah, sure. What'd you do? Oh, there was this guy at work and he, you know, asked me out to lunch. And I just thought, who is this creep? How dare he? Jealousy, envy, rage. So I broke the relationship off with her because she wasn't faithful to me and that lasted an hour. But you know what I'm saying. We, I mean, I, I, I'm sure I'm not the only person in the room who's, who's had these feelings. Let me ask you a question. Does it make you feel better to know that the sin of jealousy or envy is something that I struggle with? Does that make you feel better? 
If it makes you feel better to know that, it's probably a pretty good indication that you have the same problem. Because misery loves company is just another way of saying that people by nature are selfish and prideful and envious and full of jealousy and we all possess what the text here calls an evil eye. And as sinful sons of Adam, we are all madly in love with ourselves. We all take first place in our own lives. And some of you know that and you fight with it every day and God bless you. Others of you are still in denial, but that doesn't change the fact. And the sooner you come to the realization that the driving force that precipitates all other sin in your life is the sin of pride which is embedded in your heart, the quicker you'll begin to deal with the problem. Jealousy and envy are not only common sins, but they are ugly sins. They are destructive sins. They hurt you yourself. Thomas Fuller says that envy shoots at others, but ends up hitting itself. You're envious, you're jealous, you're really the only one who ends up getting hurt, or you get most hurt. An anonymous writer has said that every time you turn green with envy, you are ripe for trouble. You are ripe for trouble. It's hurtful to others also. Another anonymous writer has said, envy produces the mud that failure throws at success. Envy produces the mud that failure throws at success. It's not only a sin against ourselves and a sin against others, but it's a sin against God. Stephen Charnock says that envy is denial of divine providence. In other words, God, you don't have the right to bless him or her the way that you are blessing them and to put me in the position that I am. It is denial of God's divine providence. The disciples had a tremendous problem with jealousy, envy, pride, and selfishness. You'll remember in Matthew 18, the dispute that rose, arose among them, and it's also recorded in Luke. There was a dispute as they were going down the road as to who would be the greatest in the kingdom. And what does Jesus do to illustrate how wrong they were? He takes the little child and He sits them, sits Him in the midst of them. You'll remember later, that John and James, their mother, came to Jesus and said, Lord, when you come into your kingdom, grant it that my two sons will sit one on your right hand, the other on the left. They wanted greatness. They were envious. They were jealous. They wanted to be on top. And what does it say that the other ten disciples did when they heard about the mother of James and John doing this? It says that they were moved with indignation. Why were they moved with indignation? They were moved with indignation because they too wanted to be on top. The disciples never caught the message really until after the Holy Spirit came. The night before our Lord was crucified, Luke 22-24 says, but there was also rivalry among them in the upper room as to which of them should be considered the greatest. They were always bickering back and forth. Who was going to be on top? One-upmanship. That's what they were about. And even a look at the immediate context that we have here in Matthew 19-27, Peter asked the question, what shall we have? It blends right into the context. These disciples were common men, just like you and I. They were selfish men with worldly ambitions. And in giving this parable to His disciples, the Lord Jesus Christ is teaching them a lesson about selfishness, pride, envy, jealousy, and God's sovereign grace. 
I want you please to follow along as the Word is preached this morning in your bulletin. There's a place for you to take notes or to follow along. You'll notice that the style that our Lord uses is a parable. A parable. And He starts off by saying, for the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner. Remember, the kingdom of heaven is not the afterlife only. The kingdom of heaven is a multifaceted concept. It refers to both the present and the future. The kingdom of heaven is both literal and spiritual. It is both seen and unseen. It is both within you and worldwide. It is the church. It is salvation. It is God's worldwide reign. Christ's total messianic reign. It is on earth now and it is in heaven in the age to come. The kingdom of heaven is like a landowner. And the parable that's spelled out is fairly self-explanatory. But just let me... Uh, give you a few of the cultural details that might help explain it just a little bit better. And we begin with the labor contract in verses 1 through 7 of Matthew chapter 20. We see in verse 1, for the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. The work here was done in a vineyard. Now they could have been planting, they could have been pruning, or they could have been harvesting. In all likelihood, the work that was done here was probably harvesting, which would have been done late in September, and it was necessary to gather all of the grapes before the fall rainy season began. And a lot of the work had to be done in a short amount of time, and most landowners didn't have enough household servants or regular household workers to do the work, so they had to hire additional day laborers. Now, these day laborers were unskilled men, they were probably pretty close to the bottom of the social economic scale. They worked from job to job. And many of their jobs only lasted one day, and some of them not even one day. They were just used as needed. Therefore, they weren't guaranteed work from one day to the next. So at the end of every payday, at the end of every day, it was payday. They were paid at the end of the day, working in this vineyard. The pay was a denarius. And it says that in verse 2. Now, when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius, he sent them into his vineyard. Now, the denarius here is the going rate. It was the standard daily wage for a foot soldier or for a day laborer. It was a fair price. I want you to notice, and this is something key, and it'll come into play uh, later on in the sermon, is the, is the word agreed. Now, when he had agreed with the laborers. What this means is that when they went off into the fields to work, there was a negotiation that took place before they went into the field. A mutual consent was achieved. When those men who were hired first went to work, they went to work pleased with the terms of the compensation. A denarius was sufficient. A denarius was agreed upon. A denarius is what they had in mind when they went out into the field for their day's work. Now, what did the day consist of? Let her see. These men were hired, it says, early in the morning. That was probably about 6 a.m. What they would do is they would go into the city square or the village square and the laborer, the landowner would come in and he'd look for people and whoever's standing around at that time, he says, do you want to work today? Yes, we'd like to work today. Well, how much can, would you like? Well, just give me a day's wage. A denarius? A denarius will be fine. Yes, okay. Then go to work. And he sent them off at six in the morning. But others were hired at the third hour, the sixth hour, 
the ninth hour, and the eleventh hour. The third hour was 9 a.m. The sixth hour is always noon. The ninth hour was 3 p.m. And the eleventh hour was 5 o'clock p.m. with with quitting time being at 6 p.m. Now, as I read verses 3 through 7, please take note of the fact that no negotiation takes place whatsoever between the landowner and the laborers who are hired in the third hour, the sixth hour, the ninth hour, or the eleventh hour. Notice there's no negotiation whatsoever. Let me read these verses and you follow along and see what I'm saying. And he went out about the third hour, that's nine o'clock in the morning, and saw others standing idle in the marketplace and said to them, you also go into the vineyard and whatever is right, I will give you. And they went. Verse five. Again, he went out about the sixth, and that's noon, and ninth, that's 3 p.m. hour, and did likewise. Meaning, he said, whatever is right, I will pay you. And so they went. Verse 6, about the 11th hour, that's 5 p.m., he went out and found others standing idle and said to them, why have you been standing here idle all day? And they said to him, because no one hired us. He said to them, will you also go into the vineyard? And whatever is right, you will receive. Now, either they trusted him or they were really, really hard up for cash. But the point is, there were no terms. There was no agreement made with these laborers. With all four groups, there are no, there's nothing said. Go to work. Whatever's right, I'll give you. I remember when I was a junior in high school, I, uh, kind of got a job at, uh, at the Holiday Inn. Uh, in Dubois, Pennsylvania. I was kind of in between careers at that time. I had just ended my career with McDonald's and it was sort of like just right before my career with Kentucky Fried Chicken. And, and I called up the manager of the, of the motel and I, my job was going to be, you know, just kind of a, a yard boy, you know, picking stuff up, cleaning stuff up. And, and, and I had the unmitigated gall to ask this man over the telephone, uh, Sir, thank you for hiring me. Could you just tell me what is the hourly wage? What will I be making? And the man screamed at me. He said, son, do you want to work or do you want to be lazy and stay home? It doesn't matter what you'll be making. Just come to work. I thought, my career there lasted one day. What, are you nuts, pal? I'm, <laughs> just come to work? I don't even know you. How should, why should I trust you? These guys trusted the landowner. Maybe they knew him. Maybe they were just hard up for cash, but there wasn't any kind of an agreement made at all. Point? Whatever he gives you, these, these guys are thinking, man, it's nine o'clock in the morning. I'm probably not going to get, it's new, it's three, it's five o'clock. Whatever he gives me will be all right. Whatever he gives me will be more than I otherwise would have gotten. Because I probably am not going to get hired by anything else, anyone else. Whatever he wants to give me, that's just fine. Well, what ends up happening? It's a long day. It's a hard day. It's a hot day. Yabba dabba do. The whistle blows. Fred and Barney come to get their, their pay. And the landowner says to the foreman, pay everybody. Begin with the last and go to the first. Now this parable doesn't work 
It doesn't work. It doesn't make any sense at all if those who were hired at 6 a.m. get paid first, receive their denarius and go home. If that were the case, they would take their money, they would go home tired but content and satisfied. The fact that they were made to, to wait until last really is what makes this interesting. And the fact that they were aware of what the other men made makes it even more interesting. Because when they knew that those who had only worked for one hour got a full day's wage, their mind was allowed to race off to the village of disappointment. They were imagining things then in their mind. Notice that they didn't initially complain when those who worked only one hour got a full day's wage. Look, he wants to give them a full day's wage, that's great. If he wants to give them one denarius, that's fine with me as long as I get two or three. More power to you. I've worked all day, I deserve more. See, that's the whole premise behind envy and jealousy. I deserve more. Their surprise comes when they receive an equal share. Watch what happens in verses 8 through 12. So when evening had come, the owner of the vineyard said to his steward, call the laborers and give them their wages. Begin with the last to the first. When those who came, when those came who were hired about the eleventh hour, they received a denarius. But when the first came, they supposed that they would receive more. And they likewise received each a denarius. And when they had received it, they murmured against the landowner, saying, These last men have worked only one hour, and you made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the heat of the day. So what does the landowner do at this point? The landowner says, I am so sorry. My, my foreman got it all messed up. He acquiesces to them and says, how thoughtless of me. Please, please give these boys a raise. I'm sorry. Please make it right. And if it's not right, you can take me to arbitration. Please. Oh, I'm sorry. No, that's not what he says at all. The response of the landowners the landowner in verses 13 through 16 is, guys, I've been fair with you. Look in verses 13 through 16. And he answered one of them, I guess the spokesman, and said, friend, he's not being mean with him, he's, he's being kind with him. Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go your way. I wish to give to you, to this last man, the same as you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? Or is your eye evil because I am good? And so, the last will be first and the first last. For many are called, but few chosen. Guys, I'm not cheating you. I'm not defrauding you. I didn't trick you. We agreed upon a certain amount. Now, is the money mine or is the money mine? And am I not allowed to do with it what I want? If I had given you less than we agreed on, that would be a different story. If I had given you an unfair wage, that would be a different point. But as it stands, I'm being fair. I'm just. I'm generous. And it's not your place to dictate what I do with my money. So friend, and I do mean friend because you've worked very hard for me today. Friend, take your money and go home. What's the meaning of this parable? Let me tell you what it's not, first of all, and then I'll explain what it is. First of all, it's not saying that those who work in the kingdom of God for only one hour are just as valuable as those who work an entire lifetime. 
That's just not true and that's not what's being taught here. It's not an allegory saying that the Jews are those who worked all day and they bore the heat of the day, meaning they bore the law, and now the Gentiles come in at the very end and they receive uh, the full share. That's not what's being taught here. That's true, but that's not what's being taught here. It's not saying, and please catch this, this parable is not saying that there are no degrees of rewards in heaven. Now, if this were the only passage in the Bible that talked about rewards in heaven, then I would say, yes, there are no rewards in heaven. Everybody gets an equal share. But there are other passages in Scripture which indicate that there are distinct rewards in heaven. Matthew 16.27, Matthew 5.12, Matthew 6.4, Matthew 10.42, just to name a few. There are many passages in the Bible which talks about which talk about rewards in heaven. That's not what's being taught here. And also, please remember a rule of hermeneutics that we do not derive doctrine from parables, but we derive doctrine and theology from clear didactic passages rather than from parables whose interpretation is, is uh, somewhat open-ended. The Bible does teach that there are rewards in heaven. Also, it's not uh, an allegory or some kind of a story. I believe I already mentioned that. But what is it? What is it teaching? What does it teach? Well, first of all, before I tell you what it does teach, please keep the context in mind. The context is that the disciples were envious and jealous of one another. The disciples were always trying to get one up on one another. Please keep that in mind. And please remember that this parable was given to the disciples. It was for them. They needed to be taught a lesson about grace Humility, sovereignty, and envy. And it's summed up really in three ways. First of all, in verses 13 and 14 is one lesson that really this parable is teaching. But he answered and said to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go your way. I wish to give to this last man the same as to you. We need to realize, truth number one, we need to realize that the thief who hung on the cross beside the Lord Jesus Christ, who didn't even have one hour to live for his Lord, was just as deserving of heaven as the Apostle John who lived three quarters of a century in service to his king. The point is, for by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. It's not of works so that no one can boast. Everyone of us, everyone who has ever lived, save the Lord Jesus Christ, is, is deserving of hell, is not deserving of heaven. There are none righteous, no, not, there is none righteous, no, not one. We've all gone out of the way. We've all become unprofitable. Taking it to the parable, none of us deserve to be hired. We all deserve to be standing idle at the marketplace all day. And when Christ comes and He gives salvation to anyone, He is giving us at that point more than we deserve. Furthermore, when we come to Christ, we have one thing in mind. Think about your own salvation. When you come to the Lord Jesus, you want the burden of sin to be lifted off your back. You want to be forgiven. You want to escape hell and you want to, in, you want to inherit heaven. No one that I know of has ever come to Christ for salvation and said, Lord, before I repent and before I believe, just let me do one thing. 
Let me ask you a question. Let me ask you, what will my position in the kingdom be? Because I'm not really sure I want to be forgiven. I'm not really sure I want to escape hell. I'm not really sure I want to go to heaven. I'm not really sure that I want to experience the abundant life that you have until I know for certain what my position in the kingdom will be. What will my status be in the kingdom? That's ridiculous. Nobody has ever said that. All we want to do is get in the door. All we want to do is be saved. All we want to do is, is escape hell. So what you need to do, ladies and gentlemen, is you need to realize that this very minute, and don't just give mental assent to this because it's, it's, it's orthodox and it's clear teaching of Scripture. Let it permeate your heart. You and I, this very minute, deserve to be in hell. This very minute. And the fact that we are saved is strictly due to the grace of God. We are getting more than we deserve. The grace of God through the substitutionary death of Christ, through His resurrection and through His imputed righteousness which comes to us. Man, take what is yours and go home and be content with it. Just be glad that God saved you and don't be complaining about your position in the kingdom. R.C. Sproul tells the story of a seminary class that he taught where he gave a date for the students to turn in some papers and some students came and their papers were late. So he mercifully said, all right, I'll give you another day to type your paper and to hand it in. They handed in their paper the next day. He gave them whatever grade, A, B, whatever was appropriate for the, for the, the, the work that they did. Came again that there was a time for them to turn in some papers. They were late with that also. Upon being late for that, he once again had mercy upon them and said, look, you've got another day. Go ahead, hand it in tomorrow. They handed it in tomorrow. Got a good grade on it. Third time this happens. Third time later in the semester this happens. Students come and they're not prepared to hand in their papers. Mr. Sproul takes out his pencil, pulls out his grade book and writes F, F, F. And the students say, wait a minute. That's not fair. You're not being fair with us. Mr. Sproul says, would you like me to be fair with you? They said, yes, of course. Be fair with us. Took out his eraser and erased the previous two grades and wrote F, F. Now I'm being fair with you. You don't want God to be fair with you. You don't want God to be fair with you. If He's fair with you, you are in torment of hell this very minute. Friend, take what is yours and go home. I haven't been, I haven't been unjust. The grace of God is in view here. Guys, we don't deserve heaven. The second thing comes from verse 15. And it says, is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? Or is your, well, and just that first half. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? What is being taught here is God's sovereignty, God's providence. His right to do whatever He wants with His own creation. Now some people have a problem with the doctrine of election. That is that God before time chose a people to be saved. But in having a problem with that, you have a problem with the Word of God and you have a problem with the character of God. Even in verse 16 here it says, so the first will be last and the last first, for many are called, but few are chosen. If God wants to choose some for salvation and not others, he has the right to do that. 
Is he not able to do what he wants with that which is his and we belong to him? So he can choose some and not others. If he wants to be close with Peter, James and John and not with the others, that is his right. If he wants to create some people beautiful with brains and others lacking in both, does he not have the right to do that? If he wants to give some people a trouble-free life with no tragedy and no sickness and no pain, it's his creation. He can do that if he wants to. If he wants to bring a hurricane on the coast of, uh, of New York or Massachusetts, he can do that. It's his creation. If he wants to, if he wants you to struggle your entire life for every breath you're ever going to take, and if he wants you to sweat for every penny you're ever going to make, and if he wants you to endure physical and emotional and social hardships your entire life, he is allowed to do that too. Listen, when you complain about the way things are, and sometimes we all do it from time to time, when you complain about the way things are, what you are essentially saying is God, you don't have the right to put me through what I'm going through right now. I despise your sovereignty. I reject your providence and I question your wisdom. Landowner says, pal, it's my money. Do I not have the right to do with it whatever I want to do with it? I'm not being unfair to you, but I can do whatever I want with that which is mine. And I warn you today that it is a grievous sin against God and a rebellion of the highest order when you complain because what you're saying is, God, you don't know what you're doing and you don't have the right to be doing what you're doing. God asks you the question today, is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? Yes, He can do whatever He wants. To Him be the glory. And the third point, the final point, at the end of verse 15, over is your eye evil because I am good? In other words, is the real problem that we're dealing with here the fact that you are envious, full of jealousy and pride and self-love? Do you look at other believers and say, man, I hope they fail. I hope they fail. In your, with your lips, you're doing what I did with Dave Heath. Come on, Dave, I hope you win. I hope you pin them. But in your heart, are you saying, Ah, it'd be nice to see them take a fall. It'd be nice to see them learn a little lesson. It would be nice to see them put just a little bit lower than me. See, you'd never say that with your lips, but in your heart, you delight to know that they are not going to advance any further. And when they do advance, does your heart rage and say, they don't deserve that. They've only worked one hour. I've been here in the heat of the day. They don't deserve that. Is your eye evil? Do you with your lips put other people down in order to make yourself look better? Is your eye evil when someone who is younger or less experienced than you in the faith or perhaps even less qualified than you are gets an advancement or an opportunity in the kingdom of God or in the church of God, do you say, that should have been me, it shouldn't have been them? Is your eye evil? Are you jealous or envious of anybody today? I don't expect you to tell me the truth with your lips as you walk out today, but I ask you right now, within the quietness of your heart, let's get real honest. Is there anybody, believer or unbeliever, you are jealous of, that you are envious of, that you look at and you say, they just shouldn't be getting it as good as they're getting it? Because if that's the truth, it's sin. 
And it needs to be dealt with. So what I want you to do at this time is I want you to bow your head and close your eyes. Now I realize the frailty with which I have preached this sermon is is tremendous. This has not been a good sermon. I know that and you know that. But let's deal with sin at this point. I want you to ask the Holy Spirit right now to reveal to you if the sin of envy and jealousy is in your life toward anyone. It might be a brother or a sister. Mom and dad always loved them more. It might be toward your spouse. You can't stand to see them flourish while you're held back. It might be toward a friend. It might be toward somebody you don't even know. I want the Holy Spirit at this point, I want you to allow the Holy Spirit at this point to bring that to your mind and bring that to your heart. And then as a believer, I want you to confess it knowing that if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And within the quietness of your heart, I want you to pray this prayer. God, You have the right to do whatever You want with what is Yours. You made me, and You made me the way I am. You put me where I am. And the same is true of the person that I am envious of. Lord, I acknowledge that You have the right to do so. And I confess this sin and I ask You to forgive me and I ask You to give me a right attitude. Lord, I ask that You protect me from the sin of envy and selfishness and pride and jealousy. Now I want you to take a moment and I want you to pray silently for that person that you're envious of. And I want you to ask God to bless them. And as you continue in an attitude of prayer, I want you to think of a way this week that you can encourage the person that you're jealous of. Pray for them. Give them a call. Write them a note. Give them a helping hand. And I want you to contemplate this morning, is your eye evil? Yes, as your pastor, I must confess before you that I've lived an entire life with an evil eye. And I don't like it. And it's a putrid sin of which I am not proud and I repent of it. Please keep in mind that the first will be last and the last first. Many are called, but few are chosen. And that's okay, because God is sovereign. Now take a moment and thank God that He was kind enough to save you to begin with. And that you have eternal life. And thank God that He is in control and that He determines the order and the rank and the gifts and the privileges and the blessings and the trials that come our way. And He has the right to do so. Father, seal this Word to our hearts.
Father, overlook my weakness this day. By the power of your Spirit, change lives for the glory of God. In Jesus' name, amen.